Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have people call them rabbi. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. This is another of those passages where one definitely needs to understand the Sitzenleben, what the German scholars call the setting in life. Uh, into what kind of circumstances would Matthew have been writing these harsh words? Matthew is writing well after the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70, the first century of this common era. The beautiful second temple destroyed, the first one by the Babylonians, of course, in 587, and now this one, the second one by the Romans in the year 70. Two thousand years of religious practice of the Jews cannot go on the way it has before. The priest cannot function on the top of Mount Moriah. They will never have a temple again, at least not until the year 2007. There is no temple on the top of Mount Moriah. There is no Christian church on the top of Mount Moriah, just two mosques. It was a difficult time. The Jews, by and large, have now gone back to the synagogue. It's a new generation. And the Christian movement has become almost entirely Gentile. And even some of them are wondering, should we go to the synagogue with those Matthew writes into that kind of situation, and he caricatures the Jewish leadership, Dr. F.W. Baer says. He puts them in the worst possible light, and we have, need to be very careful about that. For example, he derides the word rabbi, when if a new group of people had not felt the claim of God on their hearts one by one by one, Judaism would have ceased to exist. The priests were no more. The high priests no longer functioning. The temple not in existence. The sacrificial system that had served them for 2,000 years was done away, never to be reinstituted since that time. The rabbis were crucial. He makes fun of their phylacteries. The phylacteries were little leather boxes. Uh, we think those who wore them had missed the point a little bit. The Torah says, you shall keep this teaching of God right before your eyes. And so some took that literally and that, well, you write portions of the Torah on little scrolls, little tiny pieces of paper, and you roll them up and put them in little leather boxes and you strap those to your head so that they're right before your eyes. And Matthew says, some like theirs really broad so you cannot miss them. They have tassels on their prayer shawls. Last Monday, I was at Oklahoma Magazine having my picture taken 
uh, with four other religious leaders who had been asked, each of us, to write 300 words on our understanding of peace on earth. It'll be the December issue, the Christmas one, the Hanukkah one. Rabbi Mark Fitzram was one of the ones there. We'd all been asked to bring the vestments we would wear in a primary service at our place of worship during the week. And the rabbi had brought the beautiful prayer shawl. It's so, so very pretty, I thought. And since this text was on my mind, I noticed the little tassels on the end of the, of the prayer shawl. But let me tell you that those tassels caused lots of Jews to be killed under the Nazi regime. If the Jews had ever been willing to tuck those little shawls up under their shirts or to quit wearing them completely, they might have escaped. Some of them at least. But those little tassels reminded them each other. We are the children of God. God has called us to teach the whole world. There's only one God and so forth. So you see, you and I have to be very careful here. There are very conservative Christian groups that pick up this little bit about call no one father and they say, aha, Catholic priest. That's a bad thing. There were no Catholic priests when Matthew's writing. Zero, none. He's not talking about them at all. So what can we glean from this passage that really speaks truth to you and me? I think there are some very powerful things here. The part, you remember, about don't seek the best seats in the synagogue? Let me give you absolution. I would love for you to take the best seats in the church. Would you please, next Sunday, take the best seats in the church? When Gail and I were dating, after just two or three dates, she said, now you realize this can never be serious. And I asked, why not? And she said, well, because you're a theology student. I said, I met you in church. And she said, I believe in God, but I'm not going to marry a preacher. And I asked, why not? And she said, well, I don't play the organ, and I don't play the piano, and I don't sing so very well. And I said, what if I ask you to do only one thing in being a preacher's wife? She said, what would that be? And I said, sit on the front row and root for me. And she said, I could do that. And I said, then let's keep dating and see how this goes. And for 46 years, she has sat on the front row and rooted for me. I always felt that if she would sit on the front row, not only would I feel her support, but maybe somebody would sit on the second row and the third row and the fourth row. I spent a lot of time and energy learning how to preach without notes so that I could see your eyes, but I cannot see eye movement on the 22nd row back there like I could on the front row, nor can you see mine from way back there like you could on the front row. When our children were small, I encouraged Gail to bring them to the front row where there's nothing to distract them from what was going on down front. I could make contact with them. They could make eye contact with me. So I absolve you. That is not about you. Seek the best seats in the church. That'll be fine. So what is here for us? Four things. Number one, you are all students, he says. You are all students. The word disciple itself means learner. You are still learners. There are still people who could teach you. Recently, I read an article written by a woman named Laura who's decided to tell now a part of her story. Laura's in her mid-40s now, but she goes back to a time when she was 26. She said, I had my first experience with alcohol when I was 15. And the first night I drank, I drank until I blacked out. 
And the next time I drank, I drank until I blacked out. And the third time and the fourth time, I had now been doing that to myself for 11 years. Nobody wanted to be around me. I didn't particularly want to be around anybody else either. But I started seeing some of those who had started about the time I had either turning their lives in a different direction or dying. I started going to AA, she said, and I'd been to several meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I still had this image that it was for old drunks who sleep under bridges, who don't ever bathe, who smell. That was the image, and I wasn't one of them. I was not one of them. Thanksgiving came, said she said, and Alcoholics Anonymous group said, we're going to have a dinner here for all of us on Thanksgiving Day night. Covered dish. Everybody bring whatever you'd like. We'll put it all together. We'll have supper along with our meeting. And she said, I didn't particularly want to go. Still didn't really feel that I belonged to them, but I didn't want to go see any of my family either. Because I had a family that always said, well, you're getting fat. Are you sure are thin? Are you eating right? Do you have a job? You dating anybody? I didn't want to see them. So late that afternoon, she said, I baked a pumpkin pie. And while it was still warm, I drove to the AA meeting. Got out of my car and went inside, and somebody greeted me. Oh, I'm so glad you've come. The desserts are right over here. And I put my pie along the other desserts. And in a moment, someone said, well, it's time to get started. Let's pray the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Amen. We all ate, she said. And then they introduced the speaker. As they introduced this woman, she stood up, and I noticed her for the first time. She was tall and pretty and well-dressed. And she began to tell her story. It had not always been this way for her. And as she told her story, something happened to me that they had been telling me would happen to me if I would attend enough meetings. Her story was my story. All of a sudden, I was hearing my story, and it changed the rest of my life. There is somebody who can teach you. There is someone, all of us are students. Dr. Eugene Peterson said we're all classmates. Number two, we have one teacher, Matthew reminds us. One teacher, and in case you don't know who that is, in the very next few lines, he says, the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, he is our teacher. Uh, We believe this is a God who reveals himself, but not to our eyes, not even to our ears. This God reveals himself to our innermost hearts, our minds. That's what the Jews have told us. This God is willing to reveal himself to our hearts and our minds. And we Gentiles believe that God of the Jews was willing to reveal himself to us in Mary's child, Jesus of Nazareth. If we really see him, if we really hear him, I've been trying to convince you all fall that what we think about his kingdom may not be true about his kingdom, that Jesus kept begging us to reimagine the world what it could look like, what it would look like if we really took the kingdom seriously. I recently read an article by the music critic of the Wall Street Journal about a fellow named Andres Schiff. He supposedly is one of the finest pianists out there these days. Andres Schiff has now reached age 53. 
and says that he has spent his adult lifetime concentrating on the compositions of Beethoven. Beethoven is his favorite, and so he has set out to play all 32 sonatas that Beethoven composed. This critic said that would be comparable to one actor playing the lead in every Shakespearean play. It's an almost unimaginable chore to play all 32 sonatas. But that's what Andres Schiff has set out to do. He was in Carnegie Hall the other night. He will be in Chicago. He will be in Los Angeles. And as he plays each one of these 32 in time, they're being recorded and will be issued on, on the DVD and so on. Andres Schiff said, we probably know more about Beethoven than almost any of the long-ago composers. People were fascinated with him because he was so brilliant, but also because he was so human. He lost his hearing, you remember? And his last compositions he never heard with his ear, only with his heart, with his mind. And so he's always fascinated us. Not everyone in his own time appreciated Beethoven. One fellow said to him one time, Surely you don't think that string quartet is music. And Beethoven said, Probably not for you. It's for a future time. If this time doesn't hear Jesus, maybe the next generation, maybe the next generation Surely there will come a time when people truly hear him. Number three, you have one Father. He is in heaven. The Ten Commandments include one that says, You shall honor your father and your mother, that your days may be many and long in the land. One of my professors back in seminary all those years ago said, To Jews... This honor your mother and father is not just about your biological parents. It really is a commandment to honor age. Honor those who are older. Honor those who have lived their lives much longer than you and ought to be heard. A few days ago, I was at a Jewish-Christian dialogue with Rabbi Charles Sherman. And I had a moment to chat with him, uh, just the two of us. And I said, Rabbi, one of my professors all those years ago said that one of the commandments that went about honoring your parents is not just about biological parents. It's about honoring age. And he said, well, that's true. But it's a little bit more even than that, he said. Any person who teaches you is your father or mother. Any person who teaches you is your father or mother. Matthew writes, you have a father. He is in heaven. He, he is the one to whom you relate, as the Jews would agree absolutely with that, of course. Recently, I was reading a review of a new play written by Brian Friel. This particular drama critic says that, in his opinion, the two greatest playwrights still writing today are Tom Stoppard and Brian Friel. Brian Friel is Irish. Uh, he has said that he writes his plays for the Irish. If anyone else likes them, fine. But he writes them for his own people. Uh, this latest one was produced just two years ago, went on stage in Ireland, 
now has been produced for the first time in the United States. Uh, it's about one fictional community in Ireland. It's a name he's made up, but it could be any number of small towns. This one is called Ballyweg. Ballyweg, uh, Ireland. It's 1878. It's a time of great poverty and great strife. The central character in this play is a fellow named Christopher, and he's an Anglo-Irishman, hyphenated the way we do now in this country, African-American, uh, Western European-American, Asian-American, and so on. So an Anglo-Irishman means uh, an Englishman who lives in Ireland. This fellow, Christopher, has never lived anywhere else. He was born in Ireland, but his parents were English, and his grandparents and his great-grandparents were English, and they had come to Ireland and bought up very inexpensive land, and now they were ex you know, the wealthier uh, landowners. They were the landowners. Christopher's an old man now, and he just wants to get along. But in 1878, there are young Irish men who are plotting against his life and that of other Englishmen. But one of the key lines in the play, I think, is about Christopher's not really feeling at home in Ireland. This is where he was born. This is where he's lived. But he's not really at home there. But Brian Friel also leads you to believe that if he were to go home to England, he wouldn't feel at home there because he wasn't born there. He's never lived there, just where his roots are a couple generations before. And if you read carefully between the lines, I think Brian Friel is saying, none of us really feels at home. Stanley Harvoss, William Willimon, professors at Duke when they wrote a book called Resident Aliens, say that none of us really is at home. This is not our home. We are resident aliens. St. Augustine wrote in his Confessions hundreds of years ago, our souls are restless and will remain restless until they find their rest in him. You have one Father. He is in heaven. Number four. The greatest among you will be your servant. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Have you heard this line before? Of course. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each in his own way is trying to convey the same thing. As long as you're grabbing, taking, snatching, you're losing. If you ever learn to give, if you ever learn to share, if you ever learn to put yourself out, for the well-being of another, in whatever setting, if you're really putting yourself out for somebody else's well-being, the blessing comes. You cannot stop it. It is originating from God and will bless you. Now, Kathy Morrison lives in a very small town down in Alabama. Um, when I read the name of the town, I don't have a clue where it is. I've never heard of it in my life. So it's a little bitty place. The kind of places we have in parts of Oklahoma, in Texas, where I grew up, in Louisiana, where Gail was a girl. These tiny little towns. Kathy has written about one particular woman who meant more to her growing up than anybody else. She calls her Aunt June in her writings. But as you read farther into Kathy's writings, you discover Aunt June was not her aunt at all. And she knew she wasn't her aunt. I had one of those. Everybody called her Aunt Nellie. Aunt Nellie was not my aunt. She wasn't very many people's aunt. Her husband, 
It was in the state mental hospital in Rusk, Texas. They had had one son. He was a good-looking guy. He was Mr. Carthage High School his senior year. He was uh, the sweetheart, uh, the beau of all the girls' organization and stuff. He was the best football player we had, several years older than I was. But I, I idolized him. He came to the little church uh, that we attended every Sunday morning. And so I saw him grow up. Aunt Nellie supported him and herself working the concession stand in the movie theater in Carthage, the Esquire Theater. She made the popcorn. She sold the popcorn and the candy. So virtually every kid in Panola County went in and out of that movie theater at some time, and they called her Aunt Nellie she was so kind she was so sweet with all the difficulties of her life she was so kind to everybody well that's the way Kathy describes Aunt June Aunt June was that kind of person um, Kathy writes that, that when she had her first uh, piano recitals and didn't play very well Aunt June was there to root for her when she started dating uh, things that she didn't know how to talk to her mother about she would talk to Aunt June about and get wise counsel, a good ear, someone who listened and cared and would help her work through things. So finally, when she was a young adult and got married and then was expecting her first baby, she told Aunt June so excitedly, I'm going to be a mother. And Aunt June said, I want to knit a blanket. Not one of those bought ones. I want your baby to have one hand-knitted. I'll start now. But Aunt June suddenly got very ill within the next few weeks, died, no blanket. Months later, the baby was born. And then two years later, Kathy and her husband were expecting their second child when Kathy thought about blankets. Not the ones you buy, the ones made with great love for your child. Since Aunt June was gone, she decided she better knit them herself. And so she said, not having very much money, she went to a thrift shop in this little town down in Alabama. And she said not only did she find things very reasonably priced, but the owner said you can really find some bargains over in the used bin. And she walked over to the used bin and she saw bundles of yarn that people had given up on, that had started and not finished. She saw one color she particularly liked. It was in a little plastic bag. She asked the fellow how much it was. He told her it was almost nothing. And she said, I want this one. She bought it, took it home. And when she dumped it out on the table to start getting this yarn into shape, she discovered right in the middle of the ball, this big ball, knitting needles, a blanket begun, and a name. Aunt June. She had started. She had started the blanket, even though she had not been able to finish. And then Kathy said, I cried a few minutes. And then I picked up the needles and I started to work. Because I want to be as nearly like her as I can. Because I think she got it right. 